Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. I'm Paul Colgan, director at CT Group. I'm here with James Whelan, macro strategist and investment manager at VFS here in Sydney. How are you, James? Not bad, Paul. Good to be here in the Redleaf Securities offices, also courtesy of uh, Jane Morgan Management. Thank you very much for them for hosting us. But Paul, great show ahead for today. Indeed. uh, Joining us on the line from Amsterdam is Ken Vexler, managing director and chief investment officer at Acumen Management. How are you, Ken? Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. I'm very well, Colgo. Good to be uh, good to be here. I'm looking forward to the chat. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a good one. We're here in Sydney recording this on the 14th of August 2020. Our guest this week needs a little introdu- uh, introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, he has got degrees in physics and computer science. Uh, he's a double Stanford graduate, uh, both from its executive program and uh, a master's in electrical engineering. He's got a master of applied finance for his uh, sins. And last year, he won executive of the year at the Global Stevie Awards. Uh, he's been one of the uh, most vocal ex- executives in Australia for uh, for many years now on a range of different public policy issues, but also a true burnished leader in the technology sector. He's the chief executive and chairman of ASX listed Freelancer Limited. Matt Barry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, okay, we're going to talk about a bunch of policy questions, which I know you are energized about. Um, but let's start with Freelancer. Uh, results a couple of weeks ago in the circumstances going well. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on. Uh, we now have about 47 million users from around the world. So anywhere there's electricity and the internet, we have users on the website. Uh, it's a eBay for jobs, so you can sign up uh, for free, post your job, people from around the world bid on it, and you can get anything done you can possibly think of. So any type of work from getting a logo, website design, graphic design, copywriting, data entry, right through to uh, astrophysics, aerospace engineering, genetic engineering, biotechnology, you know, uh, walk my dog, you know, lay carpet, any job you can possibly think of you get done. And every year it uh, surprises me the sorts of work you, you can do. And we go right up from $10 projects right up to we do stuff with NASA, Airbus, you know, Deloitte, you name it, the biggest enterprises in the world to supply them cloud labor. Yeah, what are you doing with Deloitte? Uh, I saw some. there's been some uh, project work with them. They're kind of an interesting organization to be doing yeah. Uh, crowdsource work with, if you like. Well, Deloitte came to us. They're the biggest, the big four. And they said they have 440,000 staff. They cannot possibly go 10x to 4 million staff. That'd be the People's Liberation of our Army of China <laughs> sort of level. Um, they said they've got to go to an alternative, which for them is go to the internet, go to cloud. I mean, Mike Milken came to Australia a little while ago at the Sense Hearts Minds Conference. And he said the defining characteristic of the 21st century was the competition for intellectual capital. Um, every woman on the planet needs to have 2.1 children to maintain the population and the birth rates around the world are declining. Uh, in Australia, I think it's about 1.8, something or other. So we're not making any more people. Even in Bangladesh, the um, replacement rate um, is actually um, well above the birth rate of Bangladesh. You've got to go to kind of parts of Africa before you know, it goes above. And in terms of education, um, as a part, percentage of discretionary income around the world, it's been, it's been dropping unless you're in China or Korea or places where they really value it. So we're not making any more people and um, education is not being as valued as it, as it should be. Um, and so you've got to keep compete for labour. And where are you going to find it? You've got to find it in weird parts of the world now through the internet. 
And so Deloitte came to us. We can't go 10x from here in traditional ways of hiring grads by the metric ton and putting them in a forklift and bringing them to Deloitte offices <laughs> and up, up charging them 5, 5x. Instead, we've got to go to the internet. So what we've done is we've built for them um, a, a platform called Deloitte My Gigs, which they've deployed internally for US consulting. Um, uh, uh, they're onboarding right now 52,000 um, US uh, employees. And stage one is hire other Deloitte people. So if you post, if you have, if you've got a project with Deloitte and you're in London and you want to hire someone to do some um, research on uh, maybe 5G telco, mm. you can post your job on my gigs. Um, people from Deloitte all around the world can bid on that job and you can award them and it helps improve the workforce efficiency, particularly because of COVID times and so forth. Everyone's working from home remotely, et cetera. But it's, you know, if you've got 440,000 people, you can bet there's 100,000 people twiddling their thumbs. Um, the second part is you click the button on the right, it goes to the cloud. And so Deloitte has publicly said now that um, uh, success for them is 20% of all US consulting projects going through my gigs. And if you think about US consulting for Deloitte, I mean, it's a huge number. And 10% of all US consulting gigs going to the cloud, to cloud labor, um, to our workforce. So um, it's, it's a huge engagement. And um, uh, we've delivered that, uh, the first stage of that, which has been deployed internally. Um, the CEO went on stage and says, everyone sign up, let's go. Uh, and uh, that's just phase one. So there's a, a lot happening with Deloitte, but um, uh, you know, really glad to be working with them. Yeah, no, it's interesting because a lot of the time with um, things like freelancer, you think about, um, well, the freelancer is, is pretty unique in, in terms of its scale and global reach. But um, with these uh, general sort of uh, platforms that allow you to source labor and tasks from different places and, and people can um, submit bids to do different things, um, you, you sort of think about the people who are, you know, outside of your organization or you're doing, it's a one-to-one job. But for people within very large organizations, there's often is exactly the skill required to do a particular task, but you just can't find it because that person is in a different country or mm. uh, perhaps even on a, just a different floor uh, to you. Uh, certainly um, my experience working in uh, large companies uh, has taught me a bit about uh, a bit about that, you know, that you kind of, your orbit tends to be confined to, you know, a sort of physical yeah. uh, reach that you have. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. Now, what have you, what do you think you have been doing well and not been doing terribly well as in the past year? Yeah. So on the, on the, on the first front, um, Look, we now are the world's largest by a long way in terms of number of users on the platform uh, across the, the broadest range of skills you can possibly think of. If you can think of a skill and post a job in it, we've got people. And in fact, it completely surprises me every year kind of the sorts of things that we're doing. I mean, we're designing radiation heat shielding for deep space missions for NASA, you know, on one hand. And on the other hand, someone's, you know, doing a logo, right? So, you know, you name it, we can do it. I mean, we, we, we flew from Egypt to Toulouse in France, an expert in um, manufacturing efficiency to improve the aerospace manufacturing plants for Airbus. You know, so you name it, we can find it in our platform. Like, like I, I challenge anyone to post a job and um, come to me and say, I didn't find anyone. We will find someone for you, for no matter how obscure the job is, if it's a job being done on the planet Earth. Um, so, you know, we're in um, 40 something languages, I think 47, I lose track, 39 currencies, um, and really there is no network or platform anywhere in the world close to this. And on top of that, we've built a liquidity. So in terms of liquidity, um, 83% of jobs get bid on within 60 seconds. 60 seconds? 60 seconds, right? Uh, people, there are just so many people. We notify them straight away. They're looking for jobs. It just floods in. Uh, we've got a, a project platform, which is the primary way you get jobs done where you took, put in a title, a budget. This is what I want done. Post it. People bid on it. Highly competitive. Um, I've seen our projects now with, you know, um, hundreds of bids on them, right? Um, and um, 
we've got a contest platform where you put up a prize and people compete for the prize and they submit entries and you say, I like this, I don't like this, change the colours, what have you. And the last time I used that platform, I put $10 in to get business cards done for a friend of mine. We're actually at the Grand Prix and he was handed a business card and it said um, race car driver slash philosopher or something or other. So my friend said, I want adventurer slash philanthropist. And um, I said, no problem, pull my phone out, posted a thing for 10 bucks, whatever, put it live. I had 430 business card designs in 24 hours. I, yeah, right. 430 I, for 10 bucks. I, could, yeah, I, 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 I've used the prize as well many yep. years ago. Many yep. years ago. I, our wine labels were done through the prize uh, system yep. uh, for Muskets of Dawn. Mm-hmm. And it was, I may have been, now I think that you got, you got a lot of work for $10. I, yeah. I may have been an overbidder on the prize. I had a $200 <laughs> prize for a thing. And it was, yeah. it was immediate. It what? was immediate. It was thick. And it was like they did the work and the homework and everything. I, I could say, I could take a photo of you now and just say Photoshop you into a Renaissance painting or something or other. And we'll get entries in probably in 20 minutes. Yeah, right. My my new office manager actually just joined us um, a few weeks ago and she's putting together a a menu. Um, And I said, this is a good idea to just use Freelancer just to typeset it for you. And I said, don't put any more than $10 in. And she she posted a project and an hour later she had 77 entries. Yeah, wow. And she's like, "It's, it's pretty immediate. So the liquidity is unmatched. Nowhere on the planet can you find the liquidity there is on Freelancer for finding labor. And nowhere. Okay, so we're, we're definitely going to talk about um, uh, in a bit about the sort of deflationary um, impact of this. You know, obviously one of the big things, particularly in advanced economies at the moment, is wages growth, right? So, mm-hmm. like, um, uh, but um, so obviously this plays a, a, a role in, in, in some of that. Um, but, of course, this is, you know, not unique to freelancer would be my assessment. Uh, this is something that's – Yeah, it's, yeah, the internet is, is doing it. So I do want to um, uh, pick up on that. But just talk quickly before we get off that. I don't, I don't want to not cover so how this year has gone for you because in the current environment, people working from home mm-hmm. l- and lots of people being laid off, millions and millions of people mm-hmm. losing their jobs around the world. Um, how, how has that impacted the business? Um, and, uh, you know, you, it was a record half for, for net revenue mm-hmm. uh, for you. But yep. um, what, what has happened to, to, to behaviour on the platform? Well, I mean, freelancer thrives in times of crisis. Um, you know, we saw this in the global financial crisis back 10 years ago, which was really the main thing that put freelancing and crowdsourcing into the mainstream. Before that, if I said to you, did you know you could get someone in Bangladesh to build your website for $50? You know, the average person in the street, I know because I ask people, with like, where's Bangladesh? Do they have computers? Do they speak English? When I have to do more work correcting the quality control? You know, it's, it's just so foreign to people. Now it's just obvious. Oh, you can go to the internet and hire people all around the world, right? But yeah. back then it was not obvious. And it sounds really bizarre. It was only True. 12 years ago. Now we're in sort of GFC squared or cubed or to the power of 10 or whatever, you, you know, because the GFC was mainly a um, real estate slash financial crisis in the US that kind of had contagion. Um, this is a global crisis. Um, and, you know, you've got really three things happening here. You've got obviously a lot of people looking for work, right, or supplementing their incomes temporarily until COVID passes, and we don't know how long that's going to be. Um, you've got um, a lot of uh, businesses looking to um, find alternative ways of hiring for a few reasons. One is obviously to cut costs, but um, because of, of, of uh, problems with uh, the economy right now, but also um, you can't physically meet people. Like if you're a small business and you want to hire a graphic designer, you, you don't want them turning up, you know, to your, to your shop and talking to them maybe, you just, okay, let's, can we just do it through the internet, right? Mm. Uh, and the third thing is there's a lot of side projects being started. In fact, this was the biggest thing in the global financial crisis and we're seeing this in a big way happening right now is just a lot of people going, I've got a period of time before my business actually will come back. Maybe I, I run an events business or a cafe and you know, times are tough. Let's start that startup I always wanted to start. The side hustle. 
Yeah, well, no, it's, it may not be a side hustle for some people. It may end up being a very big business for some people and may, may even shut down their old business. But, um, you know, I read a survey somewhere that said 60% of people think of starting their own business and 5% of people do. Um, but, you know, there's both on the, um, on the job poster side, on the business side, um, you know, your business right now, you run events, you can't run events now, so let's start a side business, maybe doing e-commerce. You know, that's why Shopify is on a tear. People starting all sorts of drop drop shipping, e-commerce sort of sites, and so forth, platform, software as a service businesses, and you've also got people who are unemployed looking for, or even or or, or employed, but on more of a job keeper sort of thing, where they know they're a bit uncertain about the future and they want something to tie them over, you know, for a while, or maybe want to try something new. So they're the three big factors that are happening right now. And so what that's resulted in is, you know, in June year on year, the traffic is up sixty percent, the funded jobs are up thirty nine percent, a bunch of metrics like bidding on the platforms up forty four percent. And so forth. I mean, we're not coming off low bases here either. Yeah. No, I mean, talking yeah. 47 million people. We've, we, we have 10,000 projects a day coming in. We have 30 to 40,000 new customers join every day. But, um, the fact, but the fact that there is still work, that there are still projects, that there are still people who need people to bid, it, it emboldens me and, and it sort of it, it, it speaks to the numbers that we see, GDP numbers. What was UK, 20, you know, 20% GDP d- decline. Everything is, is, is absolutely nuts. Yeah. But there is still work. There is work, uh, and it's going online is where it's going. It's going away from physical, you know, lo- in-location work to going through the internet. And, in fact, when COVID's over, just like the GFC, there'll be a permanent step change um, where people are used to using the tools online, you know, human-computer interaction is getting better. Um, you know, they see – once you've actually tried freelancer, and if you haven't tried freelancer, you know, you've got to use it once <laughs> because the one time – I didn't start – It is worth using, obviously. It's I, worth using, yeah. I, 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 didn't, I didn't come up with the idea. I used a website back in 2007 by a guy running, living on a fish farm in Vanuatu, Swedish guy, used his site, and my mind exploded. I literally was trying to get some work done. I was filling in a spreadsheet. I was trying for four months to get a little brother or sister or a friend of mine to do the job. I uh, said it would cost maybe $2,000, 1,000 rows. I paid $2 a row to fill in the spreadsheet. I posted it on the site. I actually forgot about it. I mean, I found the site. It looked like Craigslist at the time. It looked like you know, all these greys and all this activity. I just didn't know what was going on. And I walked away and came back a few hours later, and I had 70-something people bidding on the job. And my first impact, my first inclination was like, holy, holy, holy crap, you know, why, why are there 70 people wanting to do the job? I can't find one person locally. Why is it, this can't be real. Started talking to people, they're, they're real. My budget was 2000 people were bidding $100. I was like, well, why would you do it for $100? And immediately my budget was probably too high for filling in a spreadsheet, but I thought that was, that was the price I was going to pay. And um, I hired a team and I did it in three days and it was perfect. And I didn't have to pay, the job was done. And I thought, Jesus Christ, this changes everything. Like mm. there's, a, there's a real eureka moment when you realise there is just this army of people out there that can do work for you. They're enthusiastic, high quality, instantly available. And any idea you have in your head, you can now get done. And the only thing stopping you from doing it is not the budget anymore, it's you, right? So how would you change your business if you, had, if you could hire a limited number of people and it wouldn't have to cost you anything? You know, how would, what would you do, right? And this is what we do. We help you turn those dreams and ideas into reality. It's all there. Every skill set you can imagine is there. It's instant and it's affordable, right? Mm-hmm. And this, for some people, entrepreneurs, you try this once and you go, you cannot go back. Mm-hmm. You know, I had, I had, a, I had a, a large government organization come to me and said, Matt, I tried your website for the first time and I was trying to get some 3D modeling done, right? Um, in fact, this is actually NASA. And they came to me and said, um, this is the very, very first time in 2015 that we went to get some 3D models um, built for training the image recognition, image recognition system for the Robonaut R2 robotic astronaut on the, on the space station. So what you don't realise is an astronaut, there's a robotic astronaut that looks like Terminator on the space station. It's been there for years. 
and what they were doing was training the image recognition. So they need to they, they need to uh, have three D models for all the things it, it interacts with, such as tools, uh, access hatches, flashlights, you know, screwdrivers, all that sort of stuff, just and handrails, etc. They posted this contest. They said, "Let me tell you what happened. I put fifty dollars in. I came back the next day. I had fifty photorealistic three D renders." of these 3D models that people have built from photographs. So they didn't design it from scratch. They just took some photographs and built 3D renders. I selected one. I paid $50. I think you made a total of $5 in terms of your business from that because we charged 10%. And it was unbelievable in 24 hours. He goes, let me tell the way we used to do things. I would have to write a job description for $250,000 US a year because we're down at Moffat or what have you in, in Silicon Valley. We would have to gazette it internally for a month because of a public organization. We would then post it externally. We would then have candidates come in we would then interview them over a period of weeks. We would then decide on who we were going to offer. We would place the offer. They would give us two to four weeks notice. They would then start work. I'd have to get them an office, a computer, a swipe card, a desk, you know, security Can access we, control. Yeah. Yeah. And then a few weeks <laughs> yeah. later, I might start getting some results. Learn their name. And a, with your business, I put in $50 and I got in 24 hours. I mean, you cannot go back. In fact, they published a white paper on this and downloaded it. It's now a slide deck on the ACX where they showed their experience. Now they've hired over um, six, they've had, they've had over 6,000 freelancers submit 13,000 product designs. And in the white paper, it, and NASA can't promote anyone. It's against um, uh, uh, federal government rules to be able to endorse businesses. But it just said, here's a facts of the experience of using freelancers. Look at technical work and non-technical work and, and so forth. And they said, we saved between 80 and 99% on how we traditionally did work, 99%. And the quality of the work was sufficient to be used on 97% of federal space programs. So only 3% of the quality was not good enough. But I don't know many industries where you can save 99%, maybe semiconductors over time or biotechnology or what have you, but you know, it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing out there. Um, I, I'm definitely going to come back to this macro question of like the cost of labor and everything because I do think it's fascinating. Um, there is another very important part of the business, um, escrow.com. Yeah. Um, which um, does vastly more in terms of volumes of transactions. Yeah. Um, uh, that's and that's been a big growth engine for you in terms of volume of transactions. But mm-hmm. um, how does the business model work? And and um, obviously because it involves large sums of money, mm-hmm. um, what are your regulatory requirements? Uh, uh, yeah. How does that all work? So what escrow.com is is you can think of it like PayPal. It's an online payments business, but it's for things that are expensive and complicated. And the difference between PayPal and escrow.com is um, when I buy from you, you set the transaction up into escrow. We say, send the money to us. And then we just simply take the money and put it into trust or put it into escrow. These are just two words being in the US or Australia. And we hold the funds and we say, ship the merchandise. And then you receive the merchandise or the services. And then you say, okay, I can inspect them locally in my hand, release the money, right? It's just a simply better way of paying for things that are over the internet, Right. Um, and so um, this business has been running since 1999. It was started by Fidelity. It was funded $40 million US million by SoftBank. It IPO'd in 2000. It spun back in 2001. Long history, but it's basically used for buying things that are expensive or complicated. And that's on a relative basis. For you, something expensive might be your mobile phone. And I, w- I, d- I want to make sure I don't get ripped off. And if I sell that with PayPal and someone buys it, I might get a charge back and then my phone's gone. Likewise, if I'm a buyer and I buy a phone off Craigslist and I receive the phone, 
and there's a problem with it, yeah, there's buyer protection for my credit cards and PayPal, but what I have to do is I have to fill in an insurance claim form. Was it correctly described? What's the category area? Does it apply in this particular case? Um, did I do, do everything right and follow the rules? Um, wait six to eight weeks and then maybe get my money back, right? With escrow, it's simply, I've received the phone. There's a problem with it. Can I have my money back, please? And as long as you put it in the FedEx and send the tracking, no problem. Here's your money straight away. Do you do anything with the funds if they're held overnight or whatever? Do you? Uh, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're not allowed to do it by, we're not allowed to collect interest by law, except in the state of Arizona where we can optionally offer it um, and um, we actually have to offer it to the, to the user and then the interest can be collected. So the answer is no, we don't, we can't actually put those funds to work. In Australia you can, um, I believe, but not in the US, which is our primary market. And so it's used to buy and selling things like cars, boats, airplanes, shipping containers of goods from China, which is a big one, um, fine art, um, even there's a space station they're trying to get funded, um, which is going to be the world's first, first affordable luxury space hotel if they can get off the ground. It's $10 million a seat. You can put the <laughs> deposit in now and the deposits are collected by, by, by escrow. But the big thing with escrow in the last quarter was we, um, we, we closed and went live with eBay Motors USA. So if you buy a car from eBay Motors USA, we're the only online digital payment method. Um, and so you, uh, we're selling at the moment cars, trucks, motorcycles, trailers, buses, all sorts of stuff like that. And that's ramping quite strongly. And so it's pretty good validation. You know, if you think about automobiles globally and you know, the number one marketplace, I mean, it's pretty much eBay Motors USA is, is, is kind of where you get to. And we're live there. And we're pretty confident we will tip the entire automotive industry over the next couple of years. We, we're also in a bunch of other marketplaces like Best Car Finder and, and so forth. And another big one, which we haven't announced yet, but um, in detail. But that's kind of what escrow does. And, and where do you make your money in the, in the transaction we, process? We, we, we stack a percentage. Right, yeah. all the businesses take a percentage. In this particular case, I blended uh, last quarter was about one hundred twenty basis points, so one point two percent. And for it depends what you're buying and selling. There's different risk profiles. If you buy and sell an uh, uh, airplane, it's thirty five basis points, right? Um, and if you are a consumer and um, you're paying on a credit card, which is a very risky payment method, whatever it can get a you know three point something percent or more. So yeah, right. you know it, 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 it's a blended, but on average, um, it. it across all transactions we did in the quarter, it was 1.2%. And for commercial transactions, it's 89 basis points. So it's actually cheaper than PayPal by a long way. Yeah, 35 basis points for when I bought the private jet. That was, okay. uh, yeah, that was fine. Fair, <laughs> fair equitable. Yeah. I, I found that was right. So what's next? Where's the growth? I mean, if, if yeah. you look at where the next hill is for us. So, so what we've been doing since we bought the business in 2015 is really been engineering a, um, an API for it to be integrated like PayPal. We've done that. We've deployed that. It's now going to eBay and a bunch of other places. It's in Shopify, for example, for buying and selling Shopify stores, not in the general Shopify shops yet, uh, but hopefully soon will be. Um, and we've just gone into artsy.net, so fine art globally. Um, going into, we've gone into Artland, which is another fine art marketplace or whatever. So we're going into all these different industry verticals. A lot of import-export, um, some crazy stuff happening. Uh, we're in oil and gas. People are buying and selling oil and gas. Someone There's people protecting um, a railroad shipments of manganese in Africa with it because they can't get the insurance uh, and so the funds are held in escrow until the manganese arrives. So all sorts of, sorts of things. We're going to a whole bunch of different watch marketplaces. Um, so you name it. Um, so it's really um, credit cards break down above two, $3,000 because the limits start getting hit. Um, buyer protection stops working. Buyer protection's a pain in the ass anyway because it's like an insurance claim. Mm. Um, and so we compete at low end with these you know, credit card protection schemes at the low end and at the high end with law firms. So at the high end, if you're buying a aeroplane or a, 
you know, building or whatever it may be, you get a law firm to draft a contract and then they've got to go set up a trust fund and anyone who's been involved in a big transaction, you know, you get to the closing and the, the lawyer's running up and down the staircase going to the bank and it's, they really don't like it. In fact, um, it increases their insurance premiums and they don't make any money off it and occasionally you get fat fingers sending the money out and it gets sent to the wrong account and in fact, in today's news, I can't remember who it was, there's some um, um, lending arrangement somewhere and $600 million got sent to the wrong account. And I know, for example, in escrow in the UK a few years ago, uh, £250 million apparently was sent to the wrong bank account by the law firm just typing in the wrong account number. It's a spicy and, meatball, yeah. yeah. And it yeah. Never, got, never came back. I, have, I, I used to run operations teams and be an operations guy myself. It's as easy as a Friday afternoon, my friend. It's, uh, that's yeah. that. So th- it, avoids, uh, it avoids that situation. Yeah. So, so, so um, the growth is basically signing up these big partners and we can see – you know, the first one of the one of the first big partners we've signed up. I mean, it's been going for a few years with um, some of our partners, but you know, eBay Motors is now one of the big big marquee ones. It's going to be like this rolling out from here. And um, you know, the great thing about this is that the volume in terms of dollar value is huge with some of these guys. So, you know, yeah, it's it's only a matter of time before we sign up a partner who will do multiples of our global GMV for that escrow business. So, so that's kind of what, what, what kind of transaction volume are we doing? Um, we are doing uh, about $800 million a year right. of volume. So it's approaching uh, $800 million Australian. Australian dollars, yeah. 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 Taking you a step back, I, I was just thinking about with the uh, – we're going back to the plane situation as well. Yeah. I mean, so, so you're in a buying and selling of plane area. The, the, with the well, I mean, for obvious reasons, the collapse in the commercial airline industry has, has seen a colossal growth in corporate jet use in yeah. the USA. Yeah. That's – that has to be resulting in, in purchases for actual family offices and things like that, and actual families mm-hmm. that they don't want to fly commercial. They're just going to have to buy a plane. That's mm-hmm. that's literally the way that that's well, going to go. The same thing's happening with used cars in yep. Australia, for example. Like, um, you know, I went out actually to buy uh, buy some cars for my mum and my dad because I thought, you know, the economy's pretty cactus at the moment. I'll go out and buy um, buy a car for each of them just for something to do. And um, I, I was actually negotiating pretty hardball because I'm a pretty deep value investor. So I went to the dealership and I, and I, I got a price and uh, I, was, I, I gave him a much lower price and you know, he wasn't biting and I wasn't going to counter him, what have you. And then, um, then we had a few things happen. We had the um, superannuation changes and the, um, and the ability to um, um, uh, the, end, the asset write-off at the end of the year and a few other things. And then COVID and so forth, and nobody wants to catch public transport anymore. Yeah, and can't keep the cars. The inventory just went, and the dealers are saying, "Well, we can't get new inventory from overseas that easily at the moment due to all the problems." And so, yeah, the, so I actually went back and checked all, all the cars. I was like, "Wow, I played a bit too hardball on the pricing because it's now it's now up about twenty percent on what I was actually offering." <laughs> we'll see you later. So, we'll yeah. see you later, mate. It's yeah. Right. So the same thing in jets, apparently. Yeah. yeah, and 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 that is, it's not even on jets, just on small planes and everything like that. It is actually it is actually a move in the market. Like mm. you don't need, I don't need a corporate jet. I just need like a four or five seater, just to get me from from X to X. Little Cessna, yeah. Sydney, Sydney, yeah. Melbourne. Just and locally talking about that too, very interesting. Yeah, I mean we're in aircraft marketplaces like Wingform and so forth in the US, and there's there's plenty more coming. So yeah. Um, so uh, one more one broader question. So uh, a freelancer listed what year? Twenty thirteen. Twenty thirteen. November fifteenth. Yeah, uh, and I remember writing about it at Business Insider. Um, there you go. I think you ran, rang the bell at the ASX that day. That was my you? Justin Bieber moment that day. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was actually quite funny because uh, Twitter was IPO at the same time, and they had their bird out the front. Of, I think it was the NYSE, and we were trying to get our bird out the front of the ASX. All right. So Max Cunningham was running around. He was a great guy at the ASX, and um, he looked, we found some um, hooks we can hang this giant. Uh, thing outside the ASX on the building 
But the ASX doesn't own the building and the building owner wouldn't let us do it. So the best we do is a neon sign on the window. But, um, you know, we got a takeover offer contemporaneously with IPOing and uh, all the media went crazy and Twitter was IPOing. It was back when Mark Andreessen said software's eating the world and everyone, tech, oh, tech, they tech, were good tech, 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 tech. boom, boom, everyone was uh, IPO, IPO, it was going crazy. And um, and then I went to the exchange and there was, I think it was like 50 media, there was cameras flashing, I was on stage and, you know, uh, and um, I remember they said that there was a little Japanese guy who rang the bell before you last time you IPO'd a company, you couldn't hear it. So just give it a good ring. And I was there trying to figure out where the stock price was and the screen behind me and all the cameras are flashing and, the issue price is 50 cents. I'm looking around the screens, whatever, and I just saw this 2.50. I go, what, what's that? I go, that's your stock price. And I was doing the math in my head. It's like 1.1 billion US. And I go, Where's the rest I, of it? I, I just, I rang the bell and I ripped it out. I didn't realize I just ripped it out of the, uh, out of the, out of the bell and broke it and held it up. And then the media went crazy. It was the front page of the AFR. And uh, then Elmer, who was the uh, head of the stock exchange, said, this is what new technology does to old technology. And, 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 and he sent me the donga on a, what it was called, on a, on a, on a framed, and everyone went nuts. Um, and now, actually, what happens is every time you IPO a company, apparently, uh, Max tells me, they um, get a, the, the bell ringer and they frame it and they give it to you with your photo. Oh. And the little guy of North Sydney who makes bell, ring, bell ringers, apparently his business is yeah. <laughs> now up because he's <laughs> giving these things out. So. With the multiplier effect, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the technology go. listings. There you go. Um, so, uh, so and one of the things, so the share, share price had a very good run for a couple yep. of years. Uh, run up to something like two dollars. Uh, or two well, years later, I can explain the share price if you want. It's it's yeah. um, the share price is basically undefined. Uh, is, right. is what it is. Um, it's uh, it's it's fairly low free float company because three of us hold tightly the shares. Um, three of us have seventy seven percent of the stock. Um, incidentally, the uh, there's a fantastic podcast um, by um, Grant Williams where he interviews Mike Green. Um, uh, in the end of days, and I encourage it's one of the best podcasts uh, I've, episodes I've actually listened to ever. So I encourage people to check it out. But um, he says in 1995, when the tech boom started in the US, the biggest indicator of uh, performance in long term was a tightly held stock um, for because the, you know, the executives believe in the business and and so forth. And we believe this we can build a very very big company here. So what happened was we IPO the company. At the time, it was you know doing eighteen million in forward revenue. It IPO'd. It hit one point one billion US. Anyone can tell you that the multiple was just stupid, right? <laughs> and um, it. So what happened was everyone made five hundred and twenty percent of their money in ten minutes, and I had to roll the register over because basically you made five times your money, and then start, people start selling. Or four times money start selling. Okay, so I had to roll it over. Went all the way back down to fifty one cents. <laughs> then went back up again to a dollar seventy. And then what happened was um, uh, I bought escrow and. Um, this was a business that um, I bought. For, it was actually, I'll give you an example. I bought twenty-three companies, but this is this business did four hundred thirty million US in payment volume at the time. Um, did did about seven million, six point two million in revenue, one point two million EBITDA. Paid seven point one for it, and it had a, just a huge amount of volume come in. And you know, the the, the there's a few things that happened here. One is that um, not only is this a phenomenal business globally, like I can tell you the whole, the whole dynamics of the business if you're interested, but um. But uh, at the time, I had to rebuild the whole business from scratch because it had been running for 20 years. It didn't really have an engineering team anymore. It didn't really have a, a, um, um, uh, a didn't have any data science or any analytics, didn't have any marketing. It was just this individual had bought it out of this, um, out of Fidelity and just used it for dividends. And it was, it was well known in Silicon Valley. I mean, Uber.com's domain name sold through it, Snapchat.com, WeChat.com, Instagram.com, Chrome.com, you know, um, you know, JD.com, you know, you know, Centurion.com for American Express, Prime.com for Amazon. I mean, you name it. Every domain name in the industry is traded through this. Uh, we're, clo- we're now actually in the process of um, uh, auctioning off clothing.com, 
Fashion, right. Fashion.com was just, just sold. And let me tell you, the reserve price of that was $10 million US dollars mm. and it hit, hit over reserve. Mm. So these things can sell for a lot. So, Can you tell us who bought it? Yeah, well, uh, we, I know who bought it. Uh, actually, it turns out to be someone I actually knew um, socially uh, in the UK, but um, I can't disclose because it hasn't, they haven't gone public with it yet, I don't think. Um, but, um, and, but, but they're a big, big fashion mogul, like global fashion mogul. Um, but, um, you know, this business, I had to basically split my management team in half, put it onto escrow, um, which left me pretty thin on the freelancer side. Um, at the same time, in the fourth quarter of 2015, we bought the business. We had this big volume come through um, from China where people they were buying a virtual property, just like they buy real estate around the world, which then died off strangely in the first quarter. And we, at the time, thought it was just the publicity of buying the business that drove people to go there. So there's a bunch of things. We had to do a lot of fix-ups in that business, which drove the volume down. We had to implement proper um, AML KYC programs. We had to um, build a support team in, in five countries. We had to build all the support manuals from scratch, redo the, all the software from scratch. So there's a lot of work there. And at that time, we also took the time, and which, I mean, which we are lucky to have the luxury of because it's tightly held stock, to, to bite off a lot of technical debt on the freelancer side. You know, we grew at 50.0 compound revenue growth for um, year on year for six years. And before that, even faster, but from a low base. And when you grow that fast and you're not, we don't have the Silicon Valley philosophy of raising $100 billion and going, going, you know, really negative on the burn rate and then just, you know, going hell for leather and trying to get the revenue growth going. Instead, we bootstrapped it. I mean, what people probably don't know is when I bought freelancer.com, I paid, one, I paid um, 1.5 million US dollars for this business that was doing a million dollars in revenue. It was slightly profitable. I used 100% of the funds to buy the business. I didn't raise a cent of operating capital, not one cent until we went public, right? So I turned that 1.5 million US dollars into 1.1 billion US dollars in four years with not a cent of operating capital, right? And I bought 23 companies along the way or less than that before IPO, but quite yeah, a number. 99% of companies would have capital raised. No, everyone else in Silicon Valley would have raised $100 million and For sure. whatever. Our competitors, our competitors had raised over $100 million at that point and we did all of that. On nothing. So, but when you're doing that, what I'm doing is when I'm getting the revenue growth, is I'm making little changes here to asking the customers what the problems are, fixing bugs, fixing bugs, whatever. But you don't have the, the ability to do deep technical, pay off deep technical debt. So, got to that point and we go, we've got to pay off technical debt. So, we did. So, we had to rebuild all the back end infrastructure. So, now it's all modern and terraformed and puppetized, but and, and you know, varnished and memcaged and what have you. All tech guys will know what I mean when I say that. We had we rebuilt all the payment system, the messaging system, the membership systems. We've, we've now, over the last um, two years, redone all the front-end um, architecture. So it's like Facebook now. When you click between pages, it's instant, as opposed to load, 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 load. Uh, that's allowed us to basically build a staging environment because the back-end is, is all uh, done. So we've got a great staging environment now and so forth. And we're now ripping out mobile. So we're in the process now of ripping out. Uh, we've just ripped out the mobile web legacy, and we've, it's now responsive and so forth. It's great as we speak, literally in the last few weeks. And the next thing is we're just overhauling all the design. So we've, we, we, we have the luxury of doing this because we're tightly held. If we, um, you know, had minority ownership of the business, it would have been acquired, you know, instantly, right? So- Do you think you'd deprived yourself of some growth um, along oh, the way? Unquestion- um, unquestionably. Yeah. I mean, there's two, I mean, there's different ways of running businesses. And um, the Silicon Valley mantra is just go hell for leather, raise, 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 get that revenue, growth number going as fast as possible um, and because your valuation um, is dependent upon the year-on-year revenue growth number is the kind of the way to think about with growth companies, even though that is a bit of a misnomer. Um, and um, 
And that, that's how you do it. And the reason why that is the mythology, that, that mythology is, is the commonly accepted mythology is because that's the mythology that plays into the hands of the venture capitalists, which is basically you find, you know, you sit above the pond and you see all the tadpoles in Silicon Valley fighting it out at each other, um, believing the mythology of you put four people in a room, feed them noodles for four months, pop out the other side and maybe you can be Facebook mm. if you work hard enough. But it doesn't really work like that. percent of them just die, yeah. right? Yeah. And you see with all these Australian guys that go there and they work in motel rooms and try and build their startup. Build your startup in Australia and get it working before you go there. When you're over there, no, one, no one's going to give you the time of day, right? Unless you're really, really lucky. So the Silicon Valley VCs, they sit across the, off this, tab, this pool of tadpoles. They see the ones that are kind of starting to turn to frogs. They sweep in. They structure the deal such as, you, know, you give me two board seats, I'll give you two board seats, we'll get an independent chairman. By the way, the golden rule, who has the gold rules? The independent chairman goes with the VC, usually found through the VC network because they're experienced. Instantly you lose board control on day one. You, you, you've got this tiered uh, structure of uh, Series A, Series B, Series C, which is um, designed to abrogate the rights of, of stockholders because norm, in, in normal company, like if you list on the stock exchange, one share, one vote, Right. In um, VC world, no, because that doesn't work because they have minority interest to start off with. Let's just tier the, the capital structure and we vote all differently, right, as a class, right? And so they just it's just designed to um, get the tentacles in and take control away from you and then raise, 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 raise more money. I'll give you a higher and higher, higher valuation. And the more I do that, the more control I get until the point where I, I basically control the business. And in fact, there's a few tricks such as liquidation preference, for example. I mean, you know, the way it works is if you look at you do a scatter plot on Bloomberg of technology companies uh, with a year-on-year uh, revenue growth rate and you draw a scatter plot, before COVID times and in normal markets, if in, in inverted commas, normal, yeah. the way it kind of looked was um, if you, it's kind of a roughly linear scatter plot up to about 50%, 60% year-on-year revenue growth where your enterprise value to sales on the y-axis and your revenue growth year-on-year on the x-axis. It worked out that if you're growing about 40% year-on-year in terms of revenue growth, um, you've got about 10 times multiple on your enterprise value to sales, which basically means that your, whatever your revenue you're doing this year, your market your valuation will be 10 times that if you're growing about 40% year on year. And the trick is the VCs then look for these companies doing about 20 million a year in revenue, growing 40% year on year, right? Now in a normal IPO sense, if you list on the ASX, that might be worth about $200 million, you know, on the 10 times multiple sales. And they go, how would you like to be a unicorn? Mm-hmm. And what I'll do is I'll give you $100 million, and I'll give you a billion dollar valuation, right? And your name will be in stars, up in lights, right? And you'll be famous, and you'll be a unicorn, right? And just sign this in blood. And what they do is, I get a hundred million. So the, the founder's perspective, you go, oh, wow, I get a hundred million dollars cash. What can I do with everything? I'll last, I'll last forever. I'll be a billion dollar valuation. I'll be a unicorn. I've made it. But what effectively they're doing is in the, in the documentation, you'll see, mm, I want to participating preferred liquidation preference of 2x or something like that, which means that, you know, in a liquidation event, non-IPO, but a, but a, liquida- a trade sale, for example, which is the most likely route to liquidity for, a, for an investor rather than an IPO, the investor gets two times their money back first and then they share. So that $100 million going in, in a trade sale, they get $200 million off the top and then they share, right? And so effectively what the, the founder has done and hasn't realised is they've sold, they've, they've swapped fame for a call option, yeah. Yeah. right? So they, they don't hold equity anymore. They have a call option. So from here up, they better generate value because all they have is a call option in their business, not equity anymore. Because if it's right? 201, you get yeah. one. And it's a long-dated call option, yeah. but it's a call option, yeah. right? And effectively, that's the whole mythology. So, so 
if you, I, f- I call it the fine a greater full theory of, of, of venture investing, which is the Uber model, which is basically raise $100 million, spend it as fast as you can, which is primarily dumping it into a marketing channel, show, um, make back $130 million, raise quarter of a billion, dump it into the marketing, make back 205 raise a billion dollars, stuff it stuff in the marketing, make back 700 raise $2 billion, et cetera. And so you go to the VCs, late stage VCs, the debt markets, the private public guys like T. Rowe Price, et cetera, the Chinese, the Chinese debt markets, the Saudis, the Saudi debt markets, the Kuwaitis, I don't know, the Qataris. I mean, you run out of investors basically and you better hope you make it to the promised land, mm. right? Mm. Um, and the unit economics are working or you're dead, right? And it's actually funny. I, I, I tweeted this a while ago and I'll, I'll get the numbers. Well, well WeWork is the-, the, the, the Well, WeWork, well, right, well, yeah, well yeah. no, actually it's funny you mentioned WeWork. WeWork is the example because not only was that happening- but on top of that, SoftBank was manufacturing the valuations because they were leading every round. Yeah. Mm. So every round, you got a higher valuation uptick because I'm the one right. I'm the only guy leading the rounds. Yeah, but there were still guys sitting in the room taking it up, though. Yeah, were, of course, everyone's falling because they believed all the bullshit, <laughs> right? Everyone's believing the bullshit. We work everywhere, and you go, oh wow, these places are great, right? Let's think about it. You take office space. You don't always own the building. You carve it up and put ping, ta- ping pong tables and be it. Mate, you don't, need, you don't need to run us through it. Mate. Why, 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 why is this a high growth? Why are you getting a high growth tech valuation? You're basically subdivising office space that you're leasing and subleasing. SoftBank has right? chucked in another bunch but, of money. But, but, but SoftBank kept on higher and higher and higher and higher and higher, and higher, higher valuations. So it was all self-dealing. Yeah. Right? It was self-dealing. And, and, and in fact, what was interesting, I actually, I actually gave a, a very poignant um, um, uh, uh, you know, talk about this where it ended up and it's like um, at some point you've got to pay the piper. Right, and then the, in the case in case of WeWork, I mean, paying the pipe, and ultimately the, taking money from the Saudis and so forth. I mean, like, and, and then you have the whole thing with MBS and you know um, the Khashoggi, and so it's like, you know, you yeah, know. that did get in the way, didn't it? That one? Yeah, so <laughs> you know, like, you know, uh, WeWork, WeWork is a classic example, right? And in fact, with Uber, I mean, I tweeted this. I, I get the numbers wrong, but it, it was something. Like, and I'm, I'm making these numbers up to be clear, but it was something like you know, March 2017, 1.6 billion rides lost per ride, 55 cents. December 2018, you know, 1.7 billion rides lost per ride, 62 cents. You know, 2019, you know, 1.9 billion rides lost per ride, 78 cents. Mm. Uh, and, I, and I've tweeted, we better make up a volume. So here's a question for you, um, which is um, the difference between, so you talk about tech valuations, so yep. we work being a real estate company with, yep. the, same, with the, the usual problems that come yep. with real estate companies, you need tenants, <laughs> you need a good economy, da da da. But so there's this whole thing now about like tech, oh, oh, I'm in tech, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, um, and you mentioned software is eating the world, you know, mm-hmm. which is from sort of 10 years ago. Um, but like what distinguishes a tech company because if you're in any industry now, you're using technology. You know, farmers are using drones and software and GPS. And da, da, da. So, so what distinguishes a true tech company from from other companies that say they're tech companies? And I, the example I sort of think of here is Afterpay. Mm-hmm. Like, is it a technology company or is it sort of consumer credit or or a a a, a payment platform or whatever you want to call it? Well, I don't. I don't really um, think of it from. I don't. I don't really have a bucket where I go. Technology are great companies to invest in, and non-technology is not a great in, you know, type of company to invest in. I, in fact, I, I actually am allergic to investing in a lot of tech companies now because, uh, especially early stage technology companies, because um, it's like philanthropy. I write fifty k check. Yeah, I'll support you. Whatever. I never see it back. 
you know, sort of thing, and that, that happens so many times. I instead go, is this an investable company? I mean, is it in a massive market where it has potential to achieve a to dominate that market? You know, not a case of you know, there's a billion people in China that's some one pair of socks each, and maybe we can take out two percent. No, you want to dominate a market. Yeah. You know, can I dominate? Can I grow rapidly? Is there a defensible business model with sustainable competitive advantage? Do I have some sort of edge where um, I might have domain expertise or great great IP, which maybe plays into the technology side of things, or it's you know, and and above all, um, or relationships or whatever it may be that means I have an edge, and above all, is it scalable, right? And scalable into an unbounded market that is not um, red ocean, which is I have to fight you for a customer, but it's blue ocean, which is basically I just have to just grab market. They'll come, right? Yeah, yeah, just grab market, right? And so, you know, there are a lot of and, and then there are a lot of businesses that start off, and you look at them and go, that's not a tech business, right? Because it's just so simple. Like, like think about freelancer; it's just a website. People post jobs and people bid on the jobs, right? That, is that really tech or not, or could it be replaced by a a notice board in a, in a supermarket, right? But then, you th- but then over time, is that if you think about it, huge market, you know, it's incredibly scalable. But then there's a lot of technology behind the scenes that gets applied over time to make it grow. You know, there's a lot of machine learning for um, fraud detection and stop bad actors and to detect when things are going wrong with projects and to rectify situations and and so forth. There's a lot of um, technology to make it super liquid. You know, how do you get eighty three percent of projects bid on the sixty seconds? Right? How do you send notifications fast, real-time, scalable, et cetera, millions of people, et cetera? So there's a lot of technology that's applied in these businesses to help it grow, but ultimately I think it's not tech versus non-tech. It's really are these businesses incredibly scalable businesses that can go unbounded. So and d- does, the tech, does the tech help the scalability of that business? Unquestionable. And that's the clangor. Yeah. On that one. Yeah. So um, with your um, computer science background and everything, are you like um, how much are you sort of interested in investing in – all of the that AI um, experience part of the platform, right? So the, the the automation of the processes that mean that you don't need to have people uh, involved in doing things like fraud detection, uh, matching bidders um, um, well, to work, all that kind of thing. I, I mean, as CEO running my own business, you, ha- you have to kind of automate everything, right? Because the minute you have a human in the loop and you're trying to deal with so many people, you know, same with escrow, the transaction volume and so forth, you, 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 you just can't make it work unless, unless you automate everything. So you see you're constantly applying things and that gives you an edge over everyone else. Um, uh, in terms of, the, of an investor, if I see someone going, oh, we use blockchain, Bitcoin, AI, it's like, it's like whatever. Sure you do. You know, it's like, <laughs> sure you do. Yeah, yeah. Do, do, it, do it in a SQL database first and then come back and then what happens? about Can you do a VLOOKUP? Yeah, yeah, you worry about Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. But yeah, in, ter- in, ter- in terms of building a scalable business on the way, yeah, you've got to automate everything. Yep. Okay. Um, right. So I want to talk to turn to some broader um, things now. Um, we, we got to, um, uh, we got to some of this stuff about, yes, James. No, no, go on. Yeah. 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 Um, we got to some of this stuff about um, uh, the reducing fr- friction in the labor market, right? So mm-hmm. um, allowing, you know, the demand for work to meet the supply for work, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Very, very quickly anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, um, one of the, like when you reduce that friction, you reduce cost. Mm-hmm. One of the results is um, better price for the buyer. Mm-hmm. Um, but the converse of that is lower price for the supplier, right? So, um, so, so the person who's working gets a, a lower price for the work. Now, they, the other side of that for them is they can get more work. Not right? Well, so actually, I disagree with the premise. Um, if, 
there's a few things here going on. First, yep. of, first of all, the internet is connecting everyone on the planet. I think we're up to 4 billion people on the planet. And this has given unparalleled opportunity. And the flip side of that is income for people all around the world, right? What people are probably unaware of in a place like Australia is that 5 billion people on this planet live on $10 a day or less. Billion with a B. The vast majority of people on this planet live on $10 a day or less, right? And what they can do now with the internet is rather than be restricted to the jobs in the local area, which might be a lumber mill or a mine or working in a clothing factory, you can now work in white-collar skilled jobs in any field you want as long as you've got access to a computer and internet, right? And that may be on your phone, it might be on your computer you can afford, or it might be on a shared computer, one that's shared between a family or at a school. Uh, I remember at one point we had a top 20 website in Bangladesh and, and virtually all the traffic came from one IP address, right, through university, Right, back in the early days, uh, right? Because everyone just go to the university and use the computers, right? And, and then, wow, did you, you know, you're in your local area and you're making $2 a day. Wow, I've just, I've just got a website project for $100. Incredible, and I can do that in a few days, right? So it, you know, if you can make your month's wage in a few hours or a few days, the, the, the economic liberation that, that comes to you and your family and your, your future is incredible. And, and, and you know, the... You know, education is the lubricant of upwards mobility and with the internet or the, you know, the world of human knowledge is now available online for free, right? So it's an incredibly powerful force for transforming you know, people around the world into better lives. So, so yes, it is. So it raise, um, it's actually raising wages. Yes, it's, ra it's raising wages yeah. at a global level. Yes. But in uh, more advanced economies where wages are already high, yes. um, that extra competition for labour is potentially... Is having this deflationary, well, that, well, disinflationary that, at least. That, that is happening any, everywhere anyway. Mm. Were we getting wage, paid too well, I mean, wage, wage growth everywhere is, is, is flatlined. And, there's a, there's, and it's not just because of this. It's also because of things like um, debasing money by taking off the gold standard and a bunch of things like that where, you know, all of a sudden you had, you know, you know, um, you know wages stagnate from 1971 onwards, right, okay. as a result yeah. of that. So there's a, there's a bunch of things contributing to this. But the internet also has been an incredibly – powerful factor in doing this because the fact of the matter is that, that um, you, know, um, you know, people are connected all around the world and there are some people that have had um, you know, very well-paid um, um, existences for a period of time and, and the internet now is now changing that, right? Yeah. And yeah. it's just the nature of the world and being hyper-connected now. And competition is the most awesome force for yes. good and improvement and product improvement and yeah. um, entrepreneurialism that, yeah. um, that there is. So, which is... Terrific. One of the consequences of this is that we're seeing at a political level in societies that people are sort of wondering. Uh, now, please don't you know yep. take this as I think yep. that you are personally responsible for this. You know, it's a phenomenon, and and um, tech platforms all around the world uh, are involved in this, which have been dramatically. Um, improving products and services um, for a long time now, and doing a brilliant job of it, um, creating. Millions and millions of jobs, creating uh, enormous amounts of wealth. Um, you know, giving you know millions of jobs for um, uh, people of all skill levels, mm -hmm. um, uh, which has been fantastic. You know, creating new industries, mm -hmm. um, connecting capital with um, mm -hmm. labour, all that kind of stuff has been fantastic. Uh, I am a big you know enthusiast for it um, and for the disruption, but there are impacts. So. Um, this the, the political effect in in advanced economies of this these questions over like what is happening that the work that we used to do now is we are in competition with all of these other markets uh, where the cost is lower um, is leading to some 
fish, it's exposing exposing some problems in in so because people sort of feel like, oh, um, I mean, and there are I don't even need to name them, but there are obvious countries where this is become has become a a, a defining political issue. You know, in a couple a couple of decades, yes. But if you add up the if you add up the total GMV on every online marketplace in crowdsourcing and freelancing, and compare that to the global labour market, it's nothing. Mm-hmm. It is less than a percent. It's like de minimis, right? So, the number one thing that's caused um, the, the purchasing power of, of your of your wage to to go nowhere has been debasing fiat currency and taking it off the gold standard. And so, governments around the world are basically you know, counterfeiting money every year. And printing money, and and that's the thing that where that's caused the purchasing power of your of your of your wage to go nowhere, right? And that's what that's, that's causing inequality. That's the main reason of inequality. And th- those that actually have enough liquidity to be able to invest in financial assets, with all this money printing going on, they've seen a you know, great wealth being created. Right? That that's that's a far bigger um, reason for um, you know um, these problems in places like America and so forth than than a small number of marketplaces. If you add up the total GMV, wouldn't even add up to couple of billion dollars of volume. Mm. It's nothing. Uh, Ken, um, do, yes, I just yes. wanted to bring you in here on, on this general po- policy here. Um, I know you've been very quiet. You've been sitting back listening. You, G'day, Ken. How's it you going? You're still mate? there, mate. <laughs> yeah, I'm no, still here. still here. That's uh, just been paying very, very close attention. It's great, isn't it? Yeah. So look, Matt is a, um, as I said at the top of the show, very vocal on a whole bunch of policy issues. Uh, and I think it's yes. really important that uh, um, entrepreneurs I think, uh, I think I know, do this I kind think of I thing. I think I know where you're with this, Colgo. Yeah. Sorry so, to interrupt. And, yeah. and believe it or not, despite, despite my silence, I have actually done a bit of research and preparation. And to that end, um, Matt, if I may, I, I, I want to start off. Uh, we, you know, Colgo was basically going into, I suppose, you know, the policy side of things and, and that you're fairly vocal um, with regard to local Australian, you know, political policy and whatever else. And despite the fact that I haven't lived in Australia in about 15 years now, I was born and bred and I owe much of my, I suppose, progress, success, whatever, to Australia, its economy, its politics and the like. So this is something that's very, very near and dear to my heart as far as, you know, the political future and overall you know, welfare of the country. So what I want to do is actually, I just want to uh, read a quote, your quote to you, Matt, and sort of go off the back of that. And the quote, if I've got it correctly, uh, goes something along the lines of, we have a large, clean land and good weather. We dig out dirt of the ground, which we sell as iron ore to China, which turns into steel to build often vacant apartment blocks to pump GDP growth. We dig fossilised trees out of the ground, which we also sell to China as coal to make that steel and to burn in Japan for electricity while their nuclear reactors slowly get back online after Fukushima. To me, uh, that all rings true of why Australia has so very favourably considered itself the lucky country. Um, It's been a massive bugbear of mine for many years and I guess what I'm getting at is it boils down to finding, for me, uh, a viable, sustainable, and probably more importantly, scalable middle ground between going to Australia's comparative advantage and its absolute advantages, you know, in terms of a global picture, right? Too far in either direction and things begin to break down, especially in the case of, of the former where, you know, global demand supply chain disruptions as we've seen in the last six months, but also the Sino-US trade war, you know, things like that put a massive spanner in the works. So I suppose what I'm getting at in, in a very long-winded way is where do you see Australia headed to be able to actually generationally ensure its 
success, its growth, its place in the world uh, outside of simply digging stuff out of the ground. Um, well, you missed half the quote, which I think is the meat of the quote. I'm sorry. Um, so let me let me let me let me finish it for you. I think. Um, so yeah, we dig we dig dirt out of the ground, sell as iron ore um, with China to build apartments that um, are used to pump GDP growth uh, by building things like apartment blocks and other infrastructure, which is um, primarily to head off social unrest when the GDP growth fails. Um, we dig uh, f- you know dead trees out of the ground, which we ship to China for, to basically make that steel um, and to um, Japan to burn while their nuclear reactors were offline due to Fukushima, although they're coming online quite rapidly and the reactors around the world are also being uh, turned on. Um, uh, and we uh, uh, sell immigration dressed up as education, uh, primarily to Chinese, to come to Australia um, to get a, get a degree, but probably in many cases uh, get a property and um, and to um, have a lifestyle where the air, water and land won't kill you, um, food won't kill you. Um, in between that, we trade houses to each other, like fine paintings. I think Jonathan Tepper uh, from Variant Perceptions said, um, no other country in the world do we see middle-class houses being traded to each other like fine, in auctions like fine paintings than we do in Australia. Uh, we have literally at the top um, 20 most overpriced housing markets in the world. Uh, the majority of them are Australia. There's no reason for that. I mean, wage growth in Australia is you know, 2% at best, and now it's going to be negative, even though RBA came out a few days ago and said it's still going to be 2%. I don't know how, mm. because they're not, they're not including JobKeeper and so forth, so all these stats kind of mucking things up. But, um, um, but effectively, what the government policy has been, because we don't know what to do, um, while manufacturing is falling apart, because um, other countries are coming online uh, due to um, technology being transferred to them, due to the internet and so forth, and the labour cost being so low, um, and because we haven't decided to go up the value chain in terms of the things that we produce to produce higher margin, higher value knowledge-based um, products, um, uh, whether it's advanced manufacturing like Germany or Japan or what have you, or um, you know, biotech or what have you, instead the way we're going to survive is immigration. So what we will bring a lot of people in, and then that will pump the housing market, and we'll have a runaway housing market that's grown uh, effectively five to five to six thousand percent in the last fifty-five years, and um, those people coming in will buy buy things and so forth, and kind of keep the market afloat uh, until some other future politician can figure out what to do with it. Um, so effectively, it's just been this giant Ponzi scheme to an extent. Um, and COVID came along, and I mean the whole thing was about to. It was in the process of falling apart as we speak anyway, but then you know, COVID came along and, and, and really just laid it all, all, all clear kind of what was going on, right? And now where are we? Mm. So iron ore price mm. is still okay, pretty good. In fact, I have no idea why Fortescue is doing so well. And, They're and, phenomenal. It's, it's, I mean, it's all going well for iron ore, uh, I, but I don't think it's going to last for long. Um, you know, China's come out and said we don't want to buy Australian coal actually in the last two weeks. They, they did something some time ago where they, 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 there was a big panic uh, for a day and Glencore sold their coal assets and so forth. But, but more recently, in the last couple of weeks, they've said, we don't want Australian coal. We'll buy it from Russia. We'll buy it from Brazil. They still need the metallurgical coal, though, I think. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was a bit of a different but, 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 about, but, but we chi- can but, switch but, it off. But Chinese comp- they've actually said that Chinese, domestic supply in China from coal actually can match domestic demand. And for that, and yeah, exactly. Fact. So that, and that, so, that, was, that was a political statement. Yeah, right? and then, and then, and then, in terms of education, well, I got saw the stats today. Um, the number of uh, arrivals for um, education in Australia um, in the month of June was six hundred, down ninety nine point nine percent, whatever the number is. Mm. It's literally not. Literally, it's actually reported as one hundred percent. Yeah, right. It's zeroed. Yeah, it's zeroed. Even though people have visas and can come in if they want to, it's zero. Right, and then you got this housing market that the uh, you know, Commonwealth Bank comes out, it's going to drop 10%. And what, like, how, how is that possible? With the unemployment level 
I mean, the unemployment in re, um, retail, uh, hospitality, um, you know, uh, travel, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there, there's no way this housing market's going to drop 10%. It's going, it was going to halve before COVID. It is going to go way more than half now, right? Um, socioeconomic um, economists say that um, affordable housing is when the uh, medium um, house price, the average house price, divided by the median household income, which is two people, is 3.0 times or lower. And that's what your parents used to tell you about. Back in the 80s, I could buy a house for three times my income or whatever. And people now go, how is that possible, right? Three to four times is unaffordable. Four to five times is seriously unaffordable. Five to five, five, to five times or above is seriously unaffordable. Where are we? We were at 14 in Sydney. Yeah. And Melbourne was at 12. I think it's come down to about 11 or so now. It, it was still like number two in the world. And the flip side of all of this, and there's no reason why, because wages are not growing. So why is it growing? If, if, if people aren't making any more money and the population is not growing from natural births because the um, replacement rate is 2.1 and we're at 1.837 or something rather, then how on earth, why is property going up? If we're not having more babies and we're not earning more money, why is property going up? Bring people in, right? And it's, it, and it, and it's, it's very, 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 very high levels. And there's lots of, there's different strategies here that politicians can take in terms of this. And it can be very positive. You get people with skills in areas that are, you know, build high technology businesses. And I know two thirds of computer science graduates in Australia are, from overseas, and so that's powering. But I don't know why we're bringing people in to um, uh, cook curry in um, suburban cafes, for example, and we will bring in migration agents and greyhound kennel um, you know, attendants and all, all these jobs, just crazy jobs on the list, right? And it was just – I have no idea why. Um, okay. But, but – uh, yep. Sorry, Ron. So no, I was going to ask because earlier on you mentioned, you know, this will be the case and, and everything you've described and just spoken about – will be the case until such time as, you know, a, a politician comes on board or com- comes along and seeks to change it. So let, let me let me phrase it this way. Assume for a moment you are that politician. You have the popular mandate. You have the majority in parliament. You don't have to, you know, muck about with internal fighting or whatever else. What what needs to be done? Because, I mean, to my mind, Hawke and Keating, I mean, we, this, this can be partisan politics and can be argued about, Hawke and Keating set a fantastic platform for the country. They had, a, I suppose, almost inadvertently a vision for the nation over and above their, their maximum terms uh, as prime ministers. And since then, it's, it's gone to hell in a handbasket, right? Uh, Malcolm Turnbull probably came closest to trying to illustrate a similar you know, and deploy something, failed because of, well, we all know why. Um, assume you're that politician that comes along. What what needs to be done? How do we, how do we set a real trajectory? Well, I think I think I think the two biggest things you need that one needs to do is first of all you need to galvanise the nation in some sort of Manhattan Project or Apollo program where the whole nation understands why you're setting a certain trajectory. Um, yeah. you know, to 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 maintain the standard level we have and grow it over time. We need to have because we have a very small um, population base, even though we bring a lot of people in, and um, we're far away from everyone else. We have a very small market. You have to find industries and build industries that are great productivity multipliers. So you have to find you know industries where we can produce very um, either high margin, advanced goods uh, that can be charged large prices for in large markets, um, um, more than just digging dirt out of the ground and shipping overseas, and. So number one, you just need to galvanise the nation on that mission. I think Israel did it with technology, and I think the answer for us is technology because we, we do at this point have reasonably educated people in, in some areas. Um, but I think that 
it's it's the it's the only and the option. So you have to you have to educate the people and get the whole nation behind you about what you're doing with a mission. And then the second thing you I think the biggest thing you do is education. And what I mean by education is more than just encourage people to do it, you know, um, certain degrees or what have you. You've got to build a very advanced trade school that is world class, like in Germany, where it, it, you can probably take TAFE and you build it two or three levels above and build you know, very, very high quality you know, mechanical engineering, you know, machine shops, tooling, etc. Um, you have to uh, focus on the, not, and unfortunately people, purists won't like this, but not every degree is equal, right? There are some, from a perspective of the economy, right? So there's some degrees that people finish that come out and, and, and you know, like computer science, you know, starting salary even now is, you know, for a good person, 80, 90,000 plus. In fact, I know why is tax paying like 120, 150 for some grads, fully loaded. Um, uh, there are some uh, jobs where you, uh, some um, uh, qualifications you come out and you are immediately high, highly paid. Uh, you can, you've got great productivity, productivity multiplier in terms of your contribution to, um, uh, to the world and industry and so forth. Um, and then there are other degrees where you come out and, and you're looking for, struggling for a job. Like I, I've hired a master's from Oxford in um, literature, and they applied for a basic content writing job and, you know, like 50K a year. And I had a, um, a master's in antiquities from um, Oxford and they applied for an event planning job because they just can't get a job anywhere, right? So what I would do is I would get more people into not just software and tech and sciences and so forth and, and, so, forth and so on. I'd get them into, um, you know, the, the right trade schools, uh, I'll build a very, very solid trade school network and I would get, you've got to change the curriculum uh, or encourage, um, the, the key thing is high school students because by year 10, you know what you're going to do and you've got this whole gamified, gamified leaderboard system where um, at the top of the leaderboard is medicine and law. And uh, last time I saw a newspaper report in medicine, we couldn't actually place enough people into residencies to actually complete the degree. And God knows we don't need more lawyers in the world. <laughs> um, but you know, when I went through um, my high school, uh, it was Sydney Grammar, it was actually a great school, I didn't know what engineering was. I didn't even hear the word engineering. Even at careers fair, engineering wasn't there. Someone's dad talked about it. And I thought, maybe that sounds interesting. And I went back into careers fair at grammar three years ago and the kids still thought it had something to do with the train driving, right? <laughs> and, and it's not, and so, so you, you need to fix the educational system in um, K to 12 um, by getting more technology in there. And every kid would love to be working on SpaceX, Google Glass, next Facebook, you know, self-driving cars. Real AI, things, machine real. But they don't, they can't connect the dots between what the teachers are telling them mm. and, and in a career. Mm. And I would go so far as not just making education free in some areas, but even paying people to go to university. Like we're in such a crisis times right now. You need to upskill mm. 25 million people as fast as possible into the jobs of the future because there's a lot of jobs not coming back, right? And there's a lot of social dislocation coming due to technology. So, mm. And a classic example for this is self-driving cars. When self-driving cars will first come out in, you know, in, a, in a big, 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 big way above what Tesla's doing and so forth, it's going to um, think about um, long-haul uh, backline trucking, uh, couriers, taxi drivers, you know, number of people that are going to be out of a job who are blue-collar workers. You can't retrain them to be software developers and you probably even can't retrain a 55-year-old truck driver to serve a coffee in a, in a restaurant. The, right? the mining so, in the, so in the mining industry. But, so. what you, but what you can do is you can get a lot of people into very, in the right areas for education and in three, four years plus, they pop out the other side and they're trained, skilled, they'll get great jobs, start businesses, contribute and really build productivity. And I think out of everything you can do, that has to be the best thing. What, what about the yeah. comparative advantage? So I just got a quick question, What Ken. What, what, the comparative advantage here though, 
Because if even if we upskill people say, and say all of a sudden we have a workforce of another three million very highly qualified, um, uh, you know, capable people, you know, STEM capacity, you know, English speaking, um, but fantastic, you know, all very useful. But aren't they competing anyway against skills no. in, in skill sets in India, California, Germany? Yeah, it, it's, it's not just STEM. I'm talking about I'm, I'm talking about advanced manufacturing. I'm talking about you know, mechanical machine shops. Um, yeah, you know, the tooling. Like I don't know. You, you, Anyone who's been to America and seen um, or even watched those shows on TV about how they build classic cars and you compare it to how, how it happens in Australia, you go to get, it's like, it's, it's night and day, right? Like you know, engineering in, um, in Germany, I'm not talking about STEM engineering, software engineering. I'm talking about building physical things, you know, building a nuclear reactor or building a, you know, mm-hmm. a, a plant for production of chemicals, right? We need to elaborately transform the stuff we dig out of the ground and pump it out of the, the sea into higher margin, higher value goods, and that requires manufacturing, right? So it's not a bunch of people programming, right? So you as, like this as, idea of, you know, we take the resources, say lithium, uh, c- copper, yeah. um, uh, yeah. iron ore, and yeah. turn it into something here yeah. first and then... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and a guy who's got a great idea of things we can do is actually Jason Crewson, who's actually the chief technology officer of Woodside, Woodside Petroleum. He actually, a friend of mine, he, uh, I brought him over here to speak because he's a bit NASA. He used to run the, um, um, I'm trying to get it right, right. he ran the uh, manned uh, space program for NASA, the Johnson Center. And he's now at Woodside. And yeah, he's got like, we, we can capture carbon. We can turn that carbon into this, that, the other, blah, blah, blah. He's got, you know, these different fuels and uh, high, you know, jet fuel and this, that, the other. And, um, you know, there, there are so many things we can do with the natural resources we, 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 we produce uh, to, to elaborately transform into higher margin, higher, high-end goods. So it's not just the classic, uh, let's get everyone to computer science and be programmers. There is, it, it's far more broad-based than that in, t- in terms of actually, um, you know, covering everything. I have one last question or sort of a, a point on, on what we've been discussing. For, for the record, I largely agree, Matt, um, and I suppose that's what I meant by moving from comparative to more of an absolute advantage and actually doing something. I mean, they tried to do it in the 50s and gave up because it couldn't be asked. Uh, my question to you is you mentioned that, you know, first off, whoever it is that comes along, political leader, needs to galvanise a nation in an Apollo or, uh, you know, Manhattan-style project type way how do you do that you know in vague terms for a for a country whose national identity it's taken its national identity as the lucky country status as earned which is absolute bollocks uh rather than it's it being genuinely fortuitous coincidental so i mean generationally when i was when i was growing up you know we knew what was what we explored the rest of the world we traveled we, we, we went on great Aussie pilgrimages to the UK, worked in a pub and saw that there was something going on and actually, you know, aspired to something. I don't mean to be, you know, derogatory, but more recently, generationally, people just don't, they can't be asked. They think, wow, you know, as long as I can get some real estate under the belt, you know, I'll be rich, I'll be happy, I'll buy another ute, I'll get another tat, jobs are good. Um, how do you galvanise a nation to have that mental shift away from, well, we earn, you know, we are the lucky country because we're so good. But you're not. You're just lucky because you've got stuff under the earth. How do you galvanise that? You talk about it in a sophisticated way uh, that's more than mm. just, you know, jobs and growth or what have you, and sure. you provide a compelling argument. I mean, the, the general public is not uneducated. Um, they're quite sophisticated across mm. a, 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 a number of areas. And and you mean what you say, and you talk about deep arguments, and you set up, you set up programs to... Think about every sector, every part of 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 um, 
uh, the, the chain and kind of where you need to focus. You know, what, what do we do for, um, for people in schools? What do we do for parents? What do we do for teachers? What do we do for the universities? What do you do for um, you know, blue-collar workers? And you, and you basically you build a compelling argument and you, and you, you can galvanise the nation through talking about it in a genuine, deep and well-thought-out way and then taking action on that. Right? I, I don't think that's really the hard part and the other thing is oh. reality is coming. I mean, all around the world, you, whenever there's been a housing crash, there's never been a soft landing. It's been a hard landing, whether you're talking Portugal, Spain, UK, US, what have you. And, you know, even before COVID, this is going to happen in Australia. Uh, but, um, but, you know, re- reality will hit and people, people, you know, if you look at what people are doing now, they are building businesses, uh, you know, e-commerce businesses. That's why Shopify is booming. That's why projects on our on freelancer around um, starting new businesses are booming. People are building apps, building websites, building what have you. You know, manufacturing things and producing products. You know, if you go to Facebook now, there's all these gadgets and gizmos that people are making for all sorts of stuff, right? They're, you know, necessity mm-hmm. is the mother invention. But I think it's it's a matter of you've got to be serious and sincere and 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 articulate in in more than that's just a. I mean, people see through a through a through a soundbite. You've you've got to actually genuinely do something, right? Uh, do, do you perceive that we've got a political class, let's say inside the next 10 years, you know, that is capable or and or willing of doing that? Because I mean, sure, circumstance will dictate that we have to, but really, look, look who we're dealing with. No. No, and no, 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 no. The answer is no. For Show me someone who says yes. The, the, whole, the whole system is um, screwed up and it is designed in a way kind of for failure and it's designed a way to keep uh, incumbent parties in and uh, also to ensure that you have doofuses in uh, running portfolios. And the, the reason why is, uh, for example, I'll give you this classic example, 64C of the Constitution says that you cannot be a minister holding a portfolio unless you are elected. And what that means is, um, I, I, I joked with Malcolm Turnbull, actually, I kind of said, okay, so because um, when he'd come in and he'd go, here's my, here's my, here's my cabinet, whatever, and it's like, um, okay, imagine you're starting a company and you get, you get, you get voted in as, uh, as prime minister and then you, you have to uh, form a cabinet and if you look through, um, if you think back to 1900 and you look at the um, types of professions that people had uh, entering parliament, you had butcher, baker, candlestick maker, you know, um, you know, you know boilerman, whatever. They had all these different, now it's like lawyer, 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 uh, lobbyist, uh, journalist, lawyer, lawyer, lawyer. Um, ACTU hack. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, career politician, student politician, yep. lawyer, 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 whatever. And, and I go, okay, great. So, um, on day one, let's start my company. Okay, who's going to be the vice president of engineering? Will it be the lawyer or will it be the um, career politician, student activist, or will it be the other the journalist? Okay. Yeah. Who's going to be in charge of um, the chief financial officer, the, the, the you know, finances? Mm, uh, maybe I'll put, you know, oh, God. Is that lawyer uh, doing anything? Yeah, we'll get the, law- <laughs> we'll get the lawyer to do it, right? Yeah. Um, you know, um, and, and, and you, you look at you look at the careers of these people and and, and – they're not. They're dissociated from industry, right? completely dissociated, right? So that's an example. Um, number one example. Number two example is the way it's all set up um, uh, to win power. You, you have to be part of one of the two major parties, or you won't get enough enough seats to, to get. You know, you might get a balance of power. I mean, Don Chip had a go at it uh, years ago with uh, the Democrats, etc., and then the whole thing blew up spectacularly. But um, but you know, you you know, it's just set up. You either have to find a way to get into the into the you know, Liberal Party or get into the Labor Party. And what's happened is. Who can enter any of those parties without a? And when you when you enter as a politician, you're I don't know why you want to be a politician. In fact, it's, it's well, I think it's, this is a really you, interesting you, question. You, you, yeah. you, 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 your entire life gets dissected. Everything you've done, everything you know, 
it's funny, half these politicians set these rules and regulations about how we should live our lives, but they all, you know, their personal lives are all falling apart at the same time. But, um, but you know, you've got the Liberal Party, um, where, which has basically been dominated by who, who's got clean records where, you know, you can, you, can, you can go through them and not find any dirt. Well, probably hardcore evangelicals. Right, perhaps, and so the kind of that's what you're seeing, particularly in New South Wales and so forth, with evangelicals, etc. And also in federal parliament, mm-hmm. Scott Morrison. Mm-hmm. There's some crazy looking photos of him, mm-hmm. Hillsong or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, and then the other side, you've got Labor, and it's like, well, you got uh, trade unionists, right? And I, I don't know many people who are trade unionists, and I think even a even a tradie who's been making bonanza times during the construction booms probably don't think of themselves as as working class anymore. They've got the best Ute and probably a great house and the you know, you know yeah, boat pool and yeah. you know whatever. They're the, they're you know, the guys like, buying you know, the planes on escrow, a fishing boat, and you know whatever. Like you know, like really, it's the, know, fine art, you know? the fine art guys on the escrow. You know, so so the two parties have completely yeah. lost their way, and and they're not changing. Um, you know, Malcolm came into, for example, the Liberal Party is probably the best you could get in terms of a, a, a politician, right? A lot of people would say, oh, whatever, but like no, in terms of the quality of the person. Um, and look how that turned out. Yeah, had, had an allergic, yeah. had allergic reaction. Right to someone who might be Labor or might be Liberal because they're more middle of the road, right? Like, and, and actually has a brain, right? So you know, and yeah. as, as, as willing to kind of um, to disagree with people and 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 try and forge his own way in a, in a sense. Um, so although we need probably a bit, bit stronger plan, but um, but yeah, so, it's so just the, whole, the, whole, the whole system set up for failure, basically. Exactly. So we're doomed. I mean, you know, uh, look, I, I'm not. I'm, I am I'm not an optimist. So I refuse right? to eat. <laughs> no, 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 man. I look, I'm not fatalistic. And as I said, you know, I'm born and bred in Australia, son of immigrants, uh, and owe much, if not most, of my success to what Australia was. So I'm, I'm definitely not giving up on it, but I'm just, I'm hard pressed to see a way out, considering why well, everything we've just spoken about for the last half hour. So yeah, let's well, it's, ha- well, it's, ha- well, it's happening everywhere. I mean, look at the US, which <laughs> you, yeah. you know, look, you got t- choice between Trump and Biden, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, that's, and what, that's the best that they had. Well, it's actually, actually, people, people are actually joking. Actually, now that now, now he's actually um, got Kamala nominated as VP. Actually, that I saw overnight, Peter Schiff said, "Well, why is it Biden Harris? It should be Harris Biden, shouldn't it?" And someone replied, "Said because they're just Biden time." <laughs> for Harris. <laughs> uh, look, this has been an amazing chat. Um, I, I can't believe the time. Uh, we're way over the allotted time, so I'm, uh, I'm, I really appreciate uh, you coming along today, coming into um, to the studios here in uh, in in the city. Um, so I think we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, it's been a really great chat, uh, Matt Barry. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Um, you can find us on iTunes at the BIP show or on Twitter. It's at the underscore BIP underscore show. And we're on Facebook as well. Just search the BIP show. We're also there individually. Uh, Matt Barry, Paul, uh, Colgo, at James Whelan 42 and at Ken Vexler. Don't forget to hit subscribe and rate the show. We love those five-star ratings. Thanks everybody. James, good one. Thank you very much, mate. One of the, that was a cracking. I, I, I need a beer. Thank you very much for Redleaf and uh, for JMM Management for uh, for helping us out today as well. A lot of food for thought in there. Uh, and Ken, uh, thanks very much. Uh, hope the heat doesn't kill you in Amsterdam. Yeah, no, thank you. And Matt, uh, genuine pleasure. And, and Colgo, I'm putting in uh, a request that, I don't know, six, eight weeks, a couple of months, whatever it is, we get Matt back on, assuming schedule allows, because I, I really want to explore this policy stuff further. And, I, and I'm, yeah... It, as I said, it's a bugbear, and and I, I really yeah I want the best for the country, so I want to hear what the best and brightest have to say. So thank you, Matt, again. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Matt. Great. We'll catch you next time. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 